Welcome to the Kinky Cast, a sexually explicit podcast. If you are under 18 years of age, stop the podcast now. This is episode 164 of our weekly exploration in the kinky world of BDSM and alternative relationships. Views expressed are not representative of the management of the Kinky Cast. We welcome guests with opposing viewpoints. Today, we bring you Dr. Brad Sagarin on culture of affirmative consent. Here's your host, Woody. Thanks, Max, and welcome to another edition of the Kinky Cast. Sitting next to me in the studio, no, the beast isn't there. But over here on this other side is Dr. Brad Sagarin from Northern Illinois University. How are you, Brad? I'm doing well. Good to be here. We have uh, had you on the show once before, back in the early days. Now, is it hard to believe that was over three years ago? (laughs) It does seem much more recent than that. It does. Time flies when you're having way too much fun. (laughs) And speaking of fun, you have been doing some research. Now, before we start on that, you specialize in alternative sexualities. In terms of the research we do, we have a team uh, that is the Science of BDSM research team, uh, and we study BDSM and related practices as um, often for people an aspect of sexuality, um, but we're also trying to look at the spiritual side of BDSM uh, and other ways that people use the body to experience ecstatic states, whether they are erotic or spiritual uh, and so on. Uh, A lot of our focus so far has been looking at the physiological and psychological effects of BDSM practices, Um, but recently we've been also looking at some questions of consent and whether the uh, norms of of affirmative consent in the BDSM community may lead BDSM practitioners to have some really positive attitudes um, regarding issues of consent, um, issues of uh, rape myth acceptance, uh, and so on. So this recent research that you've done, what is the title of this paper? So this is a paper called Participating in a Culture of Consent May Be Associated with Lower Rape Supportive Beliefs. Uh, And this is a paper uh, that's currently in press at the Journal of Sex Research. Catherine Clement is the first author, uh, and then Ellen Lee is also a co-author of this paper. What we were interested in looking at in this paper is whether the BDSM community, which has long-standing norms of affirmative consent, so when two people or more people uh, get into a BDSM scene, there is typically an explicit discussion beforehand about what people want to do. There's negotiation about what are the soft limits and hard limits, what activities do people desire, and so on. Uh, And then once the scene begins, consent continues to be an active issue. So, for example, both the top and the bottom will have a safe word that they can use uh, if they need to stop the activities or change the activities. And after the scene is over, uh, there's often, as part of aftercare, a discussion of what happened in the scene. What did people like? What did people dislike? All of this creates a an atmosphere in which affirmative consent is seen as the way that things are done. And what we were interested in doing is looking at whether these norms of affirmative consent would then be associated with lower rape supportive beliefs. Well, one of the big issues that I think all of us are aware of in in our culture um, is that there is just an epidemic of uh, sexual assault. Uh, And one of the things that researchers have theorized is part of this is uh, a rape culture, the idea that we live in a culture that glorifies sexual assault. And 
in part to combat this, uh, a lot of organizations, college campuses and such, have begun campaigns trying to get people to use affirmative consent so that when two people are about to have sex, instead of just assuming that sex can continue until one person says no, instead what they teach is that everybody has to actively say yes before anything takes place. Uh, and while this is pretty new for kind of the general community, this is of course the long-standing way that the BDSM community has uh, conducted its, its business. So we were interested in whether the BDSM community then would also show lower levels of rape supportive beliefs. Uh, we conducted a study where we recruited a sample of BDSM practitioners. We also uh, collected uh, comparative samples of college students and then adults collected through Amazon's Mechanical Turk uh, system. We gave them measures of six types of, of rape supportive beliefs, including a measure of rape myth acceptance. So we asked them, for example, how much do they agree with questions like, if a girl goes to a room alone with a guy at a party, it's her own fault if she gets raped, and rape happens when a guy's sex drive goes out of control. These are widespread but inaccurate beliefs about rape, and the belief in these things can unfortunately exacerbate the problem. Um, we also asked about victim blaming, uh, various types of sexism, and so on. And what we ended up finding was that BDSM practitioners showed significantly lower levels of rape myth acceptance, victim blaming, so the tendency if a uh, rape happens to blame the victim that it was her fault uh, for what happened rather than the perpetrator, and also benevolent sexism, which is a kind of paternalistic attitude toward women, which says that women should be held up on a pedestal, but that they also are uh, weak and in need of protection. And we found that BDSM practitioners showed lower levels of these types of rape-supportive beliefs. Boy, there's too many contradictions in that. You have the promiscuous aspect, and then you have the protected aspect, all in the same sentence. Absolutely. And, and, and certainly, I think, if we look around at the ideas that we in our culture have about women, there is this ambivalence. Um, and in fact, one of the things that psychologists have developed is a measure called the ambivalent sexism inventory that measures these discordant attitudes. On one hand, um, a uh, idea of what's called hostile sexism, which is the belief that women are manipulative and use their gender to manipulate and have control over men. But then on the other side is this idea of benevolent sexism, that women are weak and in need of protection, but also should be held up on a pedestal. And both of these are, of course, sexist beliefs um, and probably related to the you know Madonna whore idea. And that all of them, of course, um, discount the idea that women are equal players in, you know, in, in interactions. Many of my friends, when they find out that I'm into BDSM and things like that, they kind of rear back and they go, well, my husband beat me up once and uh, I don't approve of what you're doing. And, you know, we, we've heard this sort of thing before. And then you explain all about consent and things like this, but they, they still hold back because it's, you're just beating up on people. How do you work around things like that? One of the things that I try to do, for example, uh, when I teach human sexuality is that I try to create connections for people between what they're interested in and what and the, and the kind of sexual interest that we're discussing. So that even if somebody is not themselves into feet or something like that, that, you know, that they try to identify, I don't ask them to volunteer what, what it is, but to try to identify like what it is that turns them on and to have this sort of like empathy and perspective taking to understand how 
this other thing that may not turn them on could have an equal attraction for this other person. One of the things that I think is particularly useful with regard to BDSM is that it turns out that BDSM fantasies are remarkably common. Uh, there's some recent research that suggests that actually well over 50% of people have BDSM fantasies of one sort or another. And so even if somebody is I guess recoiling uh, a little bit from the idea of, you know, somebody picking up a whip and hitting somebody else with it, there's probably an aspect that they can relate to. Like, do they enjoy biting their partner uh, in the middle of having sex? Do they enjoy having their partner scratch their back in a way that's, you know, almost painful? Do they enjoy holding their partner down or being held down? And I think the evidence would suggest that many people can relate to uh, some aspect of BDSM, even if the more edgy stuff, they're not quite ready to to accept. What you're talking about there is is what we see in the um, Fifty Shades movies. It's a person that was very vanilla coming into this thing and then learning more about it. And maybe they've had sex with a blindfold. Maybe they've had ice put on them. Maybe they've had some kind of pain, as you, you say, fingernails, what have you. All of a sudden, we have to move them from the vanilla category over to the kinky category. And that's starting to be a fairly high population out there. That's right. If you're going to define it as having fantasies about um, tying somebody up or being tied up or dominating somebody being dominated, then um, again, I think you, you actually need to say that it's over 50%, um, that it's a, a you know, it's a it's a solid majority of people. And then if you want to define it more as behavior, so has somebody done something like this? There hasn't been, unfortunately, that I've seen a good study getting an estimate of that. But certainly, I would say anecdotally that there's a good, you know, substantial minority of people who have played around with what we could define as BDSM in some way or another, um, and can certainly relate some of what they have done or like to do with what we would term BDSM. But Boy, if you bring in the term BDSM, if you ask about, you know, do you like sadomasochism, that sounds a lot scarier. Yeah, everybody backs off then. Exactly. And then you're going to get people saying, whoa, that's not me. Let's go back to childhood fantasies. I, from very early ages, you know, I was out tying people up. I was, you know, looking at some kinds of restraints. And I'm going, you know, in my later life, I think back and I go, does that mean I was kinky from the time I was a child? And a lot of people say they are. It's a little hard to, to weigh it just like that, but uh, the thoughts of tying people up are there in a lot of people. That's a great question. And I, I wish at this point that there were better evidence that, that we could look at to say, you know, what, what is the origin of an interest in BDSM or an interest in, in other aspects of, of sexuality? Certainly anecdotally, uh, I have talked to a lot of people who report similar things that they can remember having fantasies about bondage before they even were aware sexually or started to have fantasies about that, that they thought of as, as sexual. It does seem for some people that their interest in BDSM started at a very young age and may have then formed or been incorporated into sexuality in some way, you know, as they were becoming more sexually aware. Uh, I think that there are other people who discover an interest in BDSM um, sometime later in life. Uh, certainly, I think the uh, Fifty Shades of Grey uh, books have awakened in a lot of people, clearly, given their sales figures – an awareness of the excitement of power exchange as part of sexuality. Uh, and while there's certainly a lot that we can criticize about Fifty Shades of Grey and the portrayal that it gives of BDSM, I think the fact that it has really started a conversation for a lot of people about what they want sexually 
is for the good. You know, if, if Fifty Shades of Grey can awaken in uh, a long-term marriage where maybe passion has kind of died away and then they start playing with power exchange and, and suddenly the passion is back, that's awesome. One thing you said earlier, uh, you were talking about the consent uh, that we have in the community and, and that we ask up front and, and, and have this all worked out and then we do a scene and then we check in afterwards. Compare that to your average vanilla sex that just kind of organically happens and the pleasures are not necessarily assigned. It's not like, hey, babe, I'm going to get you off tonight. It's like, hey, babe, I'm going to get me off tonight. Believe me, that was me when I was young. <laughs> and, and so things change so much and it's more important to give, whether it's orgasms or, or, or just, you know, screaming pleasures to us kinksters and it's not understood by the average vanilla person why why do you do those things you do and then you start saying well have you ever blindfolded anybody (laughs) (laughs) i think there's a lot that the bdsm community could teach the world at large and it starts frankly with the willingness to own one's own desires and be willing to talk about them you're right that the kind of sexual script that that people believe has to happen in you know in a sexual encounter is that it basically has to happen silently that it just you know magically transforms from a from a romantic date into sex with nobody saying a word and i think that there's this idea that that if people stop and talk about it that it's suddenly going to jinx it and god forbid sex might not happen if you actually ask you know your potential partner hey do you want to be doing this well if we do that you know uh, he might say no, and then... You're going up on the rape scale then. Absolutely. There's a chance I'm going to get some tonight is a little rapey, as opposed to we have agreed to have a great time and have sex tonight. You're absolutely right. And that is, frankly, one of the number of problems that there are with this idea of, you know, it's sort of the old campaign, the no means no. Now, certainly, if somebody says no, that should absolutely be respected, but... That's not the best way to negotiate because you don't necessarily you don't necessarily want to think that it's okay to progress on with you know with more and more sex until one person says no and stop. Wouldn't it be better to sit down beforehand and discuss what each person wants? And as I said, I, I think that the kind of community at large has this idea that that's going to first jinx it. That if you sit down and talk about it, then sex might not happen because sex can only happen if you, you know, somehow seduce and maneuver your way to having sex. Um, and the other thing is, I think that there's this idea that if you do sit down and talk about it, that suddenly it's going to like rob the sex of all of its sexiness. It's not going to be fun anymore. And that's one of the things that I think the BDSM community can absolutely dispel because with BDSM folks. People sit down and have an explicit negotiation and say, okay, what's on the table? What's off the table? What do you like? What do you not like? And, and you know, the people involved share all of that. But once the scene happens, it's not like that earlier discussion robs it of its uh, excitement. I mean, I think rather um, that it seems like the people there then don't have to wonder whether the other person wants to be there. Everybody has said that they want to be there and what they want to do. They can just relax and enjoy it. And they've got this mechanism of a safe word that if they decide, if one person decides, hey, I don't want to be doing this anymore, they can uh, say their safe word and then the scene ends or they stop and talk about it and, and figure out what to do do. Um, Dulcinea Pitagora, um, who's a researcher who wrote a wonderful paper um, called Consent versus Coercion, BDSM Interactions Highlight a Fine but Immutable Line, 
thinks about a safe word, and she kind of defines a safe word as this agreed-upon code word that signifies the immediate withdrawal of consent. And, and I love that because it really, you know, that's what it is. It's, it's a word that says, I, you know, I no longer consent to what's going on here. And that's a great mechanism to have. When we've talked to Susan Wright from the NCSF uh, talking about consent counts and that sort of thing, it may have been the first time some kinksters heard the word consent can be withdrawn. And it's very much true. The fact is, I know people that said, you said I can do it and I'm going to do it. Then it went wrong. And then we're back into the rape thing again. Yes. And I wish it were the case that the BDSM community was perfect in this. But there are certainly documented cases as well as the the really you know important work that Susan Wright and the NCSF have done in terms of documenting the fact that there are consent violations and you know and more than a few and that can be a problem i think it's really important for everybody involved in BDSM particularly given the bondage and pain and power exchange that happens to constantly affirm the importance of ongoing consent And that's difficult because I think that there are also ideas in the community to say, you know, that if a bottom says no or if a bottom says a safe word, then they're not a good bottom or, you know, they're not a good submissive. And those are really dangerous ideas and dangerous attitudes because they can then lead to somebody being in a scene where they don't want to be there. And that's not what we want. Such true words. I mean, I think in some ways that that's why it's important to to have these conversations and, you know, in a way to have discussions of consent and the idea, I mean, you know, you brought up the troubling idea that BDSM folks haven't thought about the idea that consent can be withdrawn. And I think that that's an important conversation for the community to have and to reinforce that idea so that people realize that if they find themselves in a scene and don't want to be doing something that they had previously thought that they wanted to do, it is okay to safe word out of it. And it's better that they do so rather than push on with a scene because of a feeling of obligation or wanting to be a good submissive or what have you. And that's not going to lead to good outcomes. Some of the reasons that consent gets withdrawn are a little more vague than a lot of people understand. Triggers are a toughie for some people. And this couple may get together, they have agreed to have full-on sex and a good beating, and then all of a sudden, as soon as maybe the collar's put on or as soon as somebody you know, touches somebody in the wrong place, it's bringing back this negative energy to the point where they are breaking down and they're going to have to call it. And a lot of people don't understand why that happens. And You know, the top can be caught completely off guard and the submissive just goes to pieces because of a previous event maybe a rape, maybe something else that takes them down a bad path and the scene has to come to a stop. Meanwhile, the, the top standing there going, what? That's true. And and that's a critical point where the submissive needs to feel empowered to stop the scene. I mean, because psychological damage could happen after that if the scene continues. And I think one of the difficulties there is that I think that it would be understandable but inaccurate for the top to feel like, you know, she did something wrong, that in some way, you know, that she sort of tripped over a landmine she should have known was there. And sometimes triggers happen that even the bottom isn't aware is there. It just, you know, sort of comes up. Or in some scenes, you know, it can happen that the top gets triggered and needs to call the scene. These are intense activities that people are doing. Uh, and part of the, you know, the, the sort of other side of the 
excitement and arousal that they can raise is that, you know, they can also bring up negative stuff. And that itself can also be a, a catalyst for growth. But boy, it needs to be understood and respected. And if one person needs to end the scene, they need to then be able to feel comfortable doing so. And then the people need to spend some time together, you know, afterwards and, and kind of process what happened. You're drilling into the subconscious in many cases here. It's not on the visible surface, but it's lying underneath there, and you don't know it, they don't know it, and until you hit it, and then boom, off it goes. Yeah, that, that's right. And you know, and it doesn't always need to come from a, a prior experience of abuse. Certainly, that's something that can can kind of set a trigger that can later be triggered. But you know, who knows? It can be all kinds of things. We are very psychologically complicated beings. Um, and it's really hard to predict what's going to trigger somebody, you know, in a negative way, or in, in some cases, you know, what is going to sort of activate somebody in a really positive way. Obviously, it's it's nice, you know, when, when somebody is surprised by how into something that they are, and then, uh, then they want it to continue. But if something brings up something negative, yeah, it's really important to be willing to slow down or stop and process that and understand that doing so will make it a lot more likely that those people can then do a good scene later. On the other hand, just like pressing on either the bottom saying, I'm not going to say for it, I'm just going to kind of soldier on, or the top being unwilling to stop, which is then turns the scene into assault, um, is certainly not going to be the grounds for growth or positive scening later. You use the word turn the scene into assault. Now, let's stop and think about that for a second. In many states, you cannot agree to self-battery. And anybody that is hitting you with a flogger, any kind of percussive device, is considered assault even when it's consensual. Now you take the fact that it's not consensual away and you're really skating on very legal ground. You're right. Now, I'm not a lawyer, um, and so uh, while I understand that laws are different in different places and, and that in some places the consensual practice of BDSM um, could by some interpretations of the law be assault and therefore a crime. I guess from my perspective as I think about it, it, it really does come down in a sense morally and ethically to the question of, of consent uh, and that whatever its legal standing at the point where one person no longer consents and hopefully expresses that actively by using a safe word or in some other way communicating that, if the scene continues past that point, it is no longer consensual BDSM. It is, I would assume, legally, but I think also morally assault. And obviously that's, that's a, a huge problem. So if our listener wanted to uh, have a look at your paper, where would they find it? Uh, we have copies of uh, all of our papers as well as our presentations that we've done at scienceofbdsm.com. Uh, and so you can come and visit us there and uh, download copies of our academic publications. We also have links to some of the popular press that's been written up about our, our research. Those links will also be on the show page on kinkycast.com in case you didn't hear it correctly. Thank you. Dr. Brad, you have also traveled down some other roads and, and looked at other uh, work that uh, different doctors have been doing. What have you found? There's... In addition to the material we've talked about earlier having to do with these kind of like wide estimates of the prevalence of BDSM, um, but I think really for me the take-home message being that fantasies about power exchange are widespread and that, that power exchange as part of sexuality uh, really resonates with many, many people. Um, there's a lot of, of uh, good work that's being done out there um, that is trying to 
understand different aspects of, of BDSM. There's a study um, out of Portugal where they looked at BDSM practitioners and asked them a series of questions about the BDSM sex they had and also the kind of non-BDSM or you know vanilla sex that they had. And one of the really interesting things that they found is both the men and the women in their study showed greater sexual dysfunction when they were having vanilla sex compared to BDSM sex. So they showed greater problems achieving orgasm, greater problems with lubrication and maintaining erections and that sort of thing. And so it appeared that, at least for BDSM practitioners, that BDSM sex had some sexual advantages over over, uh, vanilla sex. My suspicion is that some of this has to do with the fact that BDSM sex involves the full body, uh, including, you know, maybe mostly the brain. And that vanilla sex, I think, can often be very genital focused. And so, you know, in a way, if, if a couple is going to, to engage in, you know, sexual intercourse and the man doesn't get an erection or, do, you know, can't maintain an erection, the sex is over. You know, it's, it's a disaster. Um, whereas with BDSM, there's a focus on the whole body. And in a sense, if there's not an erection, well, no big deal. There's plenty of other spots on the body to uh, to pay attention to, and there's the mind to play with. And often, I think for BDSM practitioners, particularly for people who are kind of getting older, where sexual arousal physiologically doesn't happen as easily and as quickly and as automatically as when people are younger, um, I think that that getting into a BDSM scene suddenly the arousal follows, and uh, what might have been a difficult erection to achieve beforehand is right there, uh, and then that can be incorporated. Um, so I thought that that was a really interesting study, um, and also I think may have some implications about the benefits of thinking about sex more broadly than just penis and vagina. The biggest sex organ is the skin. You know, the, the fact is that Moving away from genital sex, people are so into touch. And when I'm doing a scene, I like to get up a really good mindfuck. And you can go so far with that. Anybody out there hasn't tried it? <laughs> it's worth the price of admission. Well, I've talked with some folks at uh, some BDSM leather conferences who uh, talk about being able to be talked into subspace. So the just purely mindfuck, I mean, purely uh, a verbal interaction uh, can can throw them into this altered state of consciousness. And uh, and boy, I have to say, if, if ever have the opportunity to collaborate with a researcher who does fMRI research or so doing brain scans, I think it would be wonderful to get uh, some of the folks who can be talked into subspace into the machine and see what's going on with their brain as they enter this altered state. Um, but I think you're right. You know, the, the brain is central to what's going on uh, with BDSM and, and the amount that can be done just verbally or just with, you know, light touch and so on, uh, you know, really illustrates that. So this is all fun stuff that you're doing, and the fact that you have a BDSM team is pretty amazing in a uh, university environment. So what are the things that you're looking at in the future? This has been a fantastic team of people to work with. We have a couple of studies going on right now where we're looking at master-slave relationships. We're doing a series of interviews with people in long-term uh, master-slave relationships, trying to get an understanding of the nature of this kind of intense power exchange. Um, and we're really looking here, kind of throwing a wide net to talk to people about their rituals, about what they get out of the relationships, um, about how they see their own role, how they see their partner's role. And we're trying to understand 
what the sort of essence is of the master and what the essence is of the slave and what it is that people get out of that. We also have an experiment going on that's trying to look at one possible benefit of master-slave relationships and whether that is that it helps to, in a way, sort of conserve and strengthen the willpower of the slave. And so we have an experiment that we're currently collecting data on where we're trying to see in, you know, sort of standard scientific randomized experiment methods, and we're hoping to finish up data collection with that uh, uh, later in the spring. We have a new study where we're looking at scenes, but we're focusing in this study particularly on aftercare, um, where we're trying to figure out we ha- we're starting to get a pretty good idea of what happens during the scene to somebody, both physiologically and psychologically. But we're also wondering now what's going on after the scene is over when the people are talking and cuddling and just spending time kind of processing what happened. And we're wondering whether that's the part of the scene where the real bonding happens between people or does that happen happen earlier in the scene? We haven't started it yet, but we're interested, if it's feasible, to look at the hormone oxytocin, which is, is sometimes sort of thought of as, as kind of the love drug, and see whether that's something that changes and may increase during uh, during aftercare. So right now, we've got some kind of preliminary research that we're doing looking at how feasible it is to measure uh, oxytocin in, in people at different points in the scene. That's kind of some of the stuff that we're actively doing and, and uh, thinking of toward the future. I hope you'll bring those uh, papers back to us when you get them done. They sound like some great projects. Uh, well, thanks. I, we're, it's, it's a lot of fun to do, and I, I really enjoy uh, the opportunity to, to talk about it. This evening, we've had Dr. Brad Sagarin on the cast from Northern Illinois University. We really do thank you for joining us tonight because you have a real finger on the pulse of BDSM from uh, what I can see. Well, thank you very much. I really enjoyed this discussion. You have been listening to episode 164 of the Kinky Cast. For more information about this show, go to kinkycast.com. The Kinky Cast is a production of Rooster in the Round. On behalf of all our Kinky crew, I'm Max. See you next week when we chat with Jeff Mock on organizing kinky events.